Hello, hypertension resistors. So today I want to talk about a revolution in healthcare. So let's get to it. You are listening to Hypertension Resistant to Treatment, where you will get knowledge, training, resources, and support for better blood pressure control. If you are suffering with high blood pressure or blood pressure that is difficult to treat, this podcast is indeed for you. Here is your host, Dr. Tanya. Hi, I'm Dr. Tanya, and I am here to teach you everything you ought to know about hypertension management and trending health topics. I've been a clinical scientist for over 10 years, and I've learned the thing or two about hypertension management and medication-taking behavior. I will share with you all that I've learned and all that's out there that will help you Get control of your blood pressure and improve your health. Stick with me and use this information to help you and your family make informed health decisions. Listen up and share this information with your family and friends. Thanks for listening. A friend of mine recommended that I listen to this talk with Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand and his colleagues regarding telehealth. I found the information very informative, so I wanted to include it in this podcast. They discussed telehealth and how telehealth improved access to care in patients with COVID-19 and the potential for telehealth to revolutionize health care and improve access to care for patients with chronic diseases like hypertension and diabetes. Some experts seem to think that we have been too focused on COVID-19 over the last year because people have been dying globally as a result of untreated, untreated chronic diseases and cancer due to healthcare resources being allocated for COVID-19, testing, treating patients with COVID-19, as well as using those hospital beds for the virus. Authors of one paper in Health Affairs called The Impact of COVID-19 Pandemic on Hospital Admissions in the United States stated, and I quote, that health system leaders and public health authorities should focus on efforts to ensure that patients with acute medical illnesses can obtain hospital care as needed during the pandemic to avoid adverse outcomes. They stated that some medical conditions, for example, stroke and heart attack, require effective hospital treatment to avoid adverse outcomes. Therefore, fewer hospitalizations for such medical conditions are almost certainly associated with patient harm. So they they went on to say that the impact of hospital-based care is less clear. However, longer-term studies are needed to determine the extent to which avoiding hospitalization during the pandemic may affect the patient's um, illnesses, death, and quality of life. They noted in the paper that medical admissions fell dramatically with the spread of COVID-19 in March and April 2020. 
Based on over a million admissions in 201 hospitals in 36 states, non-COVID medical admissions fell by 40%. And they said that um, the most plausible explanation for the broad-based declines in medical admissions is that patients avoided seeking hospital care, perhaps in response to fear of contagion arising from media reports or as a result of stay-at-home orders. Now, although this study is about uh, hospital admissions, we all know that patients were probably having similar concerns in the primary care setting, especially early on during the original variant, all the way through the Delta variant. However, so many people have been exposed to the Omicron variant and are have been vaccinated that people with healthy immune systems have antibodies to the Omicron variant. And we're experiencing so much joy of having some normalcy, going back to some normalcy with being able to remove the mandates for mask wearing. And most people aren't afraid to seek medical care during this time, this high time. Although the Omicron variant is so transmissible and it is spreading rapidly in in the United States and elsewhere. So we are likely experiencing some high levels of community immunity. Yet we don't want to have to go backwards if a more deadly variant comes about. Now, what I want to talk about today, though, is how can we continue hypertensive care? How can we continue diagnosing and treating hypertension during a pandemic and at this stage of the pandemic and prevent long waits to see your healthcare provider? Perhaps we need to find a way to utilize evidence-based practice The evidence has shown that home blood pressure monitoring is the standard of care, although we're not using it as standard of care currently. Well, maybe I should say we're not using it widely as the standard of care. However, that could change. Matter of fact, during COVID, many Physicians were using home blood pressure monitoring as the standard of care during COVID using telemedicine. Let's hear what Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand has to say about telemedicine and its use during the COVID pandemic. Dr. Ferdinand is a cardiologist. He is the professor and chair of the Prevention Cardiology Department in New Orleans. Here he is. We now have a mixture of not only the need to increase telehealth, but also social justice. And we as physicians and cardiologists cannot practice in a vacuum. Telemedicine, including home blood pressure monitoring, home skills, being able to consult with patients related to their eating habits, cardiovascular risk control, are very much 
something that would be beneficial for our patients. And because many patients are at home delaying care for acute cardiovascular events, strokes, and heart failure, we may be able to see the patient and speak to the patient and encourage them to seek appropriate care and overcome their fear of going to the hospital. Now, keep in mind, Dr. Ferdinand's comments were made June 2020 when we were in the midst of the pandemic. But since Omicron, uh, most people are not really worried about going to the hospital or seeking health care during this pandemic, even though we're not technically out of the pandemic at this time. However, home blood pressure monitoring has been recognized as the standard of care by American, European, and Canada hypertension guidelines. And so far, telemedicine has been shown to be an effective intervention, especially during a pandemic. But there are some caveats that we need to be aware of, and Dr. Ferdinand did speak of these caveats, uh, and here he is uh, discussing what the caveats might be. Patients who have smartphones, it actually is fairly common even in disadvantaged communities. Unfortunately, sometimes their minutes may be limited. They may be limited wireless reception where they are. So you may not be able to get the comprehensive virtual visit as you could in a more stable environment. Fortunately, as I mentioned before, there is now in CMS, because of the pandemic, reimbursement even for the telephone visit. Not as good. You can't see the patient and have that visual connection. You can't look at the leg or look at a rash. But it still is a way of expanding the office hours, expanding your availability, bringing the family into the conversation who may be there in the home, of course, with HIPAA rules being adhered to. But it may actually be a little bit better than the person who has to catch the bus, wait 45 minutes to transfer, sit outside for 30 minutes, and then get that magic 15 minutes that we give them. Despite all of that, telehealth still is promising to provide continuity in care. It sounds like, uh, from what Dr. Ferdinand said in his talk, Medicare and Medicaid are reimbursing for telehealth visits. Here is what Dr. Ferdinand has to say about that. There's reimbursement now for self-monitored blood pressure. And the American Heart Association and AMA just came out with a position paper. You, you can find it easily on the web, suggesting that self-monitored blood pressure may be superior to the clinic blood pressure because you can get better idea of blood pressure load. Of course, the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is the gold standard. But if a person measures the blood pressure at home twice a day for an extensive period of time, you can get that sense of blood pressure load and a better predictive target organ damage and actual blood pressure numbers than, again, that magic 15 minutes that's in the clinic, often done inappropriately. Since the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology are recommending home blood pressure monitoring as the standard of care to diagnose or treat hypertension, it may be apparent that telehealth is a good thing to add on to the existing 
office visits for more frequent follow-up to manage hypertension. Nevertheless, we know it's not just cut and dry. We know, we know insurance plays a big part of this situation of implementing telehealth as well as home blood pressure monitoring. And we know that infrastructures have to be in place in order for home blood pressure monitoring to be used effectively in clinical practice as well as in order for telehealth to work. Let's hear what Dr. Ferdinand has to say about that. Say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I actually think that we're making a big mistake when we do the wallet biopsy, where we show our bias for the person who has the private insurance versus the person who has no insurance, because the uninsured patients are going to get care. And we're going to pay for that care because they're going to use the emergency department as their primary source of care. When do you go? When their legs are swollen, they can't breathe, they have heart failure. When they can't urinate, now they have in-state dream disease. When they have slurred speech and blurred vision, they're, they're threatening a stroke all of which would have been preventable if we had insured everyone, gave them identifiable source of care, made it easy to get appropriate referral to specialists and imaging when they needed it, we would actually end up saving dollars. I, I can't tell you why our society doesn't get that. Wow. He is absolutely right. And I believe this pandemic has moved us towards looking into implementing more of this telehealth to prevent those kind of problems. Now, as part of the infrastructure problem, patients or everybody needs to know how to get a validated blood pressure monitor, or they need to know if their blood pressure monitor is validated, the one they already have. Here is Dr. Ferdinand with some resources that might be very useful. There is a coalition of AHA and AMA. It's called Target BP, and you can find it at targetbp.org. They actually have Validate BP, which is a site where they actually use an evaluation, an objective evaluation of the worth of the home blood pressure units. And they have data at that site that shows that they may even have better control. You clearly can identify patients with white coat effect or white coat hypertension. And you can identify patients with mass hypertension when they come to the clinic, so-called normal. But then if they're using a valid machine with appropriate technique, uncontrolled hypertension. So specifically related to blood pressure, I think heart failure, you're right, but I think blood pressure is right there in terms of having good data that home monitoring is a a way to go. So during the talk that Dr. Ferdinand had with his colleagues, a question came up about the lack of trial data being pertinent to minorities. And here is what Dr. Ferdinand had to say about that, because, I mean, this is a very important part in order to make sure that we are utilizing the research that's out there that is pertinent to minorities. But then there are some research that's not pertinent to minorities, meaning that the study was done in a different race of people. So studies done in different races are not always, the results are not always appropriate to be used for a different population. It's what we call generalization in research. So in other words, you sometimes 
it's not appropriate to generalize a study that was done in India and bring it over to the United States. And that particular study is an intervention that works in India, but it may not work in the United States because of the differences in the population, uh, the environment, and other factors. Here's what Dr. Ferdinand had to say about that. You know, I, I live that world. And one of the things that is often overlooked is that these clinical trials have to make an effort. If you look at some of the newer devices and some of the new medications, the percentages of minorities in some of those clinical trials is one, two, three percent. Yeah. And you're really going to miss some of the nuances on how people may respond. NHLBI and NIH trials will over-select for racial and ethnic minorities and for women because they are now aware that if you're going to take new devices and new therapies and apply them across a heterogeneous broad population, you need to show that those particular interventions are beneficial. If you don't do that, you have the unintended consequence of then doing a subgroup analysis and it may go the wrong way for women, or it may go the wrong way for Hispanics or Asians, or it may go the wrong way for self-identified Blacks. So you're better off by making sure that you enroll a population which is diverse and the subgroups are robust so that when you do that analysis, you don't get a type 1 error and you come out with things like, well, this drug is really great, but it doesn't work in this population or that population. Okay, so we talked a lot about how telehealth, the advantages, the barriers, the uh, caveats. Well, telehealth can do some other things, too. So let's hear what he has to say about that. We talked about telehealth in terms of controlling risk factors, identifying arrhythmias, et cetera. But the other thing that I think it does, and it's inherent in what we've been saying, but I, we need to put it out there. It educates the patient. An informed patient will not allow the busy clinician to just say your blood pressure was okay. How was my blood pressure today? It was okay. No, no, no. What was the number? I had blood drawn two weeks ago. What was my A1C? I had a lipid panel. What was my LDL? And sometimes we as clinicians get mixed up, especially with patients who have poor health literacy or less education. We think that they're less intelligent, but that's not at all. If you empower the patient and telemedicine has that ability because you're able to have more touch points and you're able to communicate directly with the patient and his or her family, that patient's actually going to be a better patient because they're going to challenge you to do the right thing. Telehealth was available during the pandemic and we're still in the pandemic, as I said before, but at some point, the pandemic is going to be over with. Well, the question came up, well, will we have the same access to telehealth once the pandemic is all over with? So here's what he has to say about that. EMS is going to have a quandary because the reimbursement for virtual visits, and then they change it also to the reimbursement for telephone visits equal to that of in-clinic visits, was supposed to be an emergency maneuver because of the pandemic somebody's going to declare, I don't know who, that the pandemic is over, so no longer are we going to reimburse for telehealth. And that's going to probably be a fairly chaotic day in all of our lives. So how did 
providers utilize telehealth during the COVID pandemic to treat COVID? So that's something I have not done, but I know Cleveland Clinic did initiate this in some patients. Patients who have a diagnosis of COVID-19, give them a thermometer and an oximeter and let them monitor their clinical care to see if they need to come for inpatient care. So what about the patients that don't have a blood pressure monitor or don't have the equipment, such as a pulse oximeter, blood pressure monitor, or blood sugar monitor? Would telehealth be useful for people without this equipment? In terms of the blood pressure cuffs, the, the cost may be a barrier. I have seen some analyses where you can give the patient the blood pressure and with the reimbursement for monitoring, self-monitoring, which is an ongoing uh, payment to the physician. It's once a month. It's not a lot. It might be $15, $20, but it can recoup the $40 or $35 for a validated blood pressure cuff. There's one of the commercial uh, companies that has a smart watch that actually measures blood pressure. I don't use it. It's not part of the valid validate BP website that I was talking about. And the risk blood pressures, some of them are pretty good if you use completely, absolutely meticulous technique. But for many patients, when you start talking about the watch and the wrists and the finger, I get a little bit, you know, suspicious. Well, rightfully so, because as we know, the watch, the finger and the wrist blood pressure monitors are not recommended by the national guidelines. And we know the cuff size is very important and some people's arm are not within the parameters of the large blood pressure cuff. So if that is the case, you can use your lower arm in order to get the blood pressure according to research that this is a better alternative than using a wrist cuff or the watch or finger cuff. It's very difficult to position yourself appropriately to get an accurate measurement. There's a certain way you have to hold your arm in order to get a good blood pressure measurement when you have a wrist cuff. So it's more difficult than with the arm cuff. But who would have predicted that we'd have had such a revolution in care? Uh, it's just something that perhaps many of us were not prepared for, but it's here. It's going to be hard to take it away because there's now evidence that there's patient satisfaction. You can educate the patients. You keep those touch points, which decrease hospitalization. And on the other side, you're able now to identify patients who may need more intensive evaluation versus waiting until they are into the throes of an acute coronary syndrome or pulmonary edema or a frank stroke. Okay, so there you have it. Telehealth is likely here to stay, and some insurances include telehealth within your purchase of your policy and then other insurances have it where you can add telehealth onto your insurance policy for a minimum of uh, like $20 a month where you can utilize that along with your health insurance. If you have Medicare and Medicaid, you may still be able to get a telehealth visit that's paid for. 
by Medicare or Medicaid and your doctor is reimbursed. Check with your health care provider to see what's available for you. So far as telehealth is concerned, it may be a nice service to have. Stay tuned to Hypertension Resistant to Treatment, where you'll learn more about what everybody ought to know about hypertension and trending health topics. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.